Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We're halfway through the book now. This is the sixth chapter of this book written by Solomon. I'm going to read aloud if you would follow in your bulletins or your own Bible. There's an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. What is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Would you please be seated, and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we ask this morning that you would work through your word, by your spirit, in our hearts. We know, Lord, that our hearts are calloused, that sin remains, that we're always in conflict, but we ask this morning, our Lord and our God, that you would open the ears of our heart, the eyes of our heart that we might see and hear. And as we see and hear that we might glorify you more fully in your Son, Christ Jesus, who has died for our sins, we ask all of this in his name. Amen. This morning as we begin, I was thinking about Ecclesiastes chapter 6, and I was thinking about how this chapter, it feels like a summary or a study guide of the first five chapters we've already read. You know, if there are college students here, I know there are many college students here, you came back from fall break, and you probably uh, just had or are about to have your midterms. For many of you in middle school, elementary school, or high school, you probably just finished your first quarter and had your exams at the end of the quarter, and you all probably know what a study guide or a summary looks like. It's a, it's a short collection a brief collection of a summary of all that you have already looked at or all that you have already learned. And as you heard Ecclesiastes chapter 6 read aloud this morning, you were probably thinking, well, that's everything we've already talked about, right? 
And because this chapter feels like a summary chapter, we often quickly read over Ecclesiastes chapter 6. I know when I read it for the first time, I thought, oh, here we go again, right? There's a conversation about wealth and about pleasure and about toil and work and about the good things of this world, but we've already talked about them in the first five chapters. It feels almost exhaustive, like it's too much, like we can't really talk about those things again. But I will tell you this morning, as you look at Ecclesiastes chapter 6, I believe there's something significant that happens in this chapter, so much so that I would suggest to you this morning that this chapter might be the chapter that everything has been moving towards, okay? I believe there's a good argument to be made that chapters 1 through 5 are moving towards chapter 6 and 7, and then we're going to move away from those in the last five chapters, almost mirroring what we've seen in chapters 1 through 5. So this is a significant chapter. And I'm going to save you the suspense this morning. We don't have much time, and so I want to cut right to the chase why I think this chapter is significant. I, I was reading through this, and about the fourth or fifth reading through the chapter, a, a light bulb went off in my head, and it was in chapter 3, uh, sorry, verse 3. If you look at verse 3 there, uh, uh, Solomon is talking about the man, and he says, but his soul is not satisfied in the good things of this world. And about the third or fourth time reading through this chapter, I said, wait a second, I think that's the first mention of the soul in this book. I don't know if you've noticed it, okay? Five chapters into a discussion about the meaning or the purpose of life, asking the big questions for all of humanity, and we haven't mentioned the soul yet. That was interesting to me, okay? And so I, I think it's significant. Solomon has spoken about the heart, and he's spoken about the mind, and he's spoken about the things of this world. But verse 3 of chapter 6 is the first mention of the soul, okay? And here's what I'd like to do. The word for soul in Hebrew is the word nefesh, okay? Nefesh. And I want to talk about that word this morning. You can see it's printed in the insert in your bulletin. That's the word that appears here in verse 3. We don't see it in the first five chapters, okay? It's a significant word, and we'll talk about why that is in a second. But let me tell you something, okay? Not only does that word appear in verse 3, it also appears in verse 2, in verse 7, in verse 9. It's the first four times it appears in this book. It'll be the last times it appears. It appears once, actually, at the beginning of chapter 7, but not again through the entire book of Ecclesiastes. So there's something significant happening in chapter 6. How do we know that? Well, we know when we read the Bible, when we come upon something that we have never seen or we seldom see, that there's an intentional purpose that it appears, especially when it happens four times in a chapter. So we're reading through Ecclesiastes, and we say Solomon has been intentional. The voice of Solomon, the Word of God through Solomon, has been intentional in the first five chapters not to speak about the soul, but here the soul is all over the chapter. So that's significant. Let me point out the places. First of all, verse 2, as verse 2 is talking about the man, again, it says that he lacks nothing. The word he, yeah, good English word, but it's actually the Hebrew word nephesh, okay? The word that's often translated as the soul. So verse 2 technically says, so that the soul lacks nothing. Verse 7, appetite. There it says, all the toil of man's work is for his mouth, but his appetite is not satisfied. The word appetite, the Hebrew word nephesh. 
Okay, nefesh. And then finally, verse 9, uh, uh, there it speaks about the sight of the eyes. The sight of the eyes is better than the wandering of the appetite. And again, the word for appetite is translated in English as appetite is the Hebrew word nefesh. Okay? So there you have it. Now, let me talk about the word nefesh then. Biblical background of the word. I would first tell you that the word nefesh in and of itself, not really a special word, okay? It's a word that appears some 750 times in the Old Testament. 750 times. About 500 times it's translated into English as the word soul, okay? But often it's also translated in other ways, as you see this morning. Sometimes it's translated as the psyche or the will. Sometimes it's translated as the appetite, which you saw here this morning, not so much the physical appetite, but a spiritual, invisible appetite. It's, it's a reference to things we can't see, the will, the desires, the emotions. Sometimes it's translated as emotions as well, okay? And if you're, if you're thinking about, okay, how does this word function in Scripture, I'll tell you it first appears in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, God makes, first He makes the animals. This word is used to describe the animals, and it is there used to distinguish them from the plants. The plants are physical, and yes, we would say they're alive, but in a very different way than the animals. This word is used to describe how the animals are alive. They are living creatures. Sometimes the Bible says living souls, okay? That's the word. Next occurrence, Genesis chapter 2. God forms the man from the dust of the earth, and he takes the physical body that has no life in it, and he breathes into it, and the Hebrew Scripture says that the man became a living nephesh a living soul, a living creature, okay? Fast forward, Genesis 9. God says, if, if you kill another man, that your life will be demanded of you. And in Genesis 9, it says, not just your body, but your nephesh. That is, there will be a reckoning of your very being, okay? There'll be a reckoning of your being. Uh, the psalmist uses this word often. The psalmist says, my nephesh glorifies the Lord. My soul glorifies the Lord. My nephesh blesses the Lord, okay? So it's the word often used for soul, but let me tell you really how the word functions, okay? You probably picked up on it. This word is the Hebrew word that's meant to compare all of the human being that is the opposite of the physical, okay? Everything that's not physical. So we have the physical part of humanity, and then we have the invisible, right? It encapsulates the psyche. It, in, it includes the emotions and the will and the volition it is most usually described as a soul because the soul is invisible. The soul, the thing that God causes to last after we die, okay? The thing that we would say defines what really is a human being. The great picture, again, in Genesis chapter 2. Adam was not a man when he was formed of the dust until God breathed life into him and he became the living creature, okay? And so that is the biblical history of the word that appears here in Ecclesiastes chapter 6. So let me tell you why that's important. The question that's being asked in chapter 6 comes directly from verse 3. The question is very simple. Can the soul, can the invisible parts of man be satisfied with the physical things of this world? That's a good question. It's a question that we've been beating around the bush on. It's a question that we kind of have talked about through the first five chapters, but never articulated quite like this. Can the soul of man be satisfied 
with the things of this world, okay? Now, I think to answer that question, it would be helpful to give you a little bit of modern history on why this is such a, very, a big problem for the society we live in and for us ourselves, okay? So let me give you the two-minute version of the history of the soul and the body and where we arrive today, okay? From the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek New Testament, there was always in the biblical mindset a dualistic uh, characteristic of man. There was body and there was soul. We see that in Genesis. I referenced it this morning. We see it again and again in Ecclesiastes. We'll see it in Christ's words. Christ speaks about the body and the soul. The body and the soul. We'll look at one of those passages in a second, okay? So there's a dualism in man that is true all the way through the New Testament, and that idea gets carried over into the societies and the people groups immediately after the New Testament period and forward for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, okay? There was a dualism in Greek thought and in Roman thought. The Greeks said, well, the body's bad and the soul is good, and so the, the function in this world of humanity is trying to escape the body, okay? But they had a dualism. It's a little bit different, yet they conceived of the idea in the same way. We trace that idea all the way through uh, uh, history, through the Middle Ages, through men like Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas wrestled over what is the relationship between the body and the soul, okay? We trace that idea through the Reformers and through the Puritans, and it was in Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy and in the Reformation Church and the Protestant Church. We could trace that idea all the way up into what I would call modern history, and the idea takes a 90-degree turn around the 1700s, okay? Many of you know the name Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant comes up with a number of new philosophical ideas, not the least of which the phenomenal and the noumenal. And he says in his postulating, he says that God, the real self, and the soul are part of the noumenal. And what he means by that, he says, is that those are things we just can't understand. We will never understand, right? That idea sounds really attractive. Not understanding God, of, of course, in one sense, it's hard to understand God, yet He has revealed Himself to us. But for our purposes this morning, I want to just show you what happens to the concept of the soul and the body. From the early 1800s, the philosophy of Kant comes into the education system. It begins to impact the whole of society, and, then, and we see in the 1900s then this idea of the unknowability of the soul, it becomes the non-existence of the soul, right? For a while it was, we just can't know the soul, so we don't talk about the soul. Then, turn of the century, 1900s, especially in the modern era, the idea becomes not that we can't know the soul, that the soul doesn't exist. There is no soul, okay? So, for the last, let's say, 50 to 100 years, the predominant view of culture is that there is no soul. And so, we're only concerned with the physical world, okay? We're only concerned with physical things. I want to tell you this morning, if you're not aware of that idea that's shaping our culture, you've probably missed out on a whole heck of a lot that's been happening in the last 3, 5, 10, 20, 50 years, okay? That our culture conceives of humanity only as physical beings. And so we answer questions having to do with what is best for the physical self, okay? That's why the question this morning, verse 3, is the soul satisfied with the good things of this world? That's why it's so applicable to the world that we live in, all right? Now, 
as, as we look at this passage, then uh, I think you'll begin to see that chapter 6 is the most applicable for the world around us than any of the five chapters that we've read leading up to this morning. Because chapter 6 wrestles with that very thing, the physical answers for the spiritual appetite of the soul. Look at them, verse 2, okay? Verse 2 is the proposal, the proposition that wealth, possessions, and belongings can satisfy the soul. Will they satisfy the soul? And he asks the question, okay? The world around us would say, yes, there's something to be satisfied by the soul with the wealth, possessions, and belongings of this world. And I know we talked about that idea in chapters 2 and in chapter 4, okay? He moves on in, in verse 3. In verse 3, he begins to give some uh, examples through hy- hyperbole, through exaggeration, right? And kids, if you're wondering, what is hyperbole? What's exaggeration? It's like when you say to your parents, you never let me do, you know, fill in the blank, or you always, and you know that that's not true, but you're trying to make a point by exaggerating, okay, by being dramatic. Solomon is making the point here in verse 3 and verse 4 and 6 by exaggerating. Did you see some of the exaggerations? First of all, in verse 3, he says, what if a man having 100 children, okay? And so you, you got to know he's talking to a Hebrew culture who elevated family and elevated life, okay? Live a long life, have a big family. That's what we hold to be dear. And so he's saying to the, to the Hebrew culture who's listening, what if, you, what if the man had 100 children? And all the mothers are saying, that sounds like a terrible idea, okay? But to the culture, this is like the epitome of the greatest example of what it would look like to have a a family, a quiver full of arrows, okay? So what if a man had 100 children? Would that satisfy the soul? Good question. Okay, if family is the most important thing in this world, then you would think maybe 100 children would satisfy the soul. And there in verse 3, he says, not only that, but the man with 100 children lives a long life, a long, happy life. And then he gets to verse 5, and what does he say about long life, okay? Uh, in, in verse 5, as he's speaking about life, Uh, Sorry, verse 6, he says, even if one should live a thousand years twice over, okay? And you know that's exaggeration. Nobody lives a thousand years. Nobody lives a thousand years twice over. Nobody lives 2,000 years, okay? But the proposition is if family and long life are the best that this world has to offer, then if you had 100 children and 2,000 years worth of life, would it satisfy the soul? Would it satisfy the soul? Good question. Okay? I think these are the very questions that the world around us needs to be asked because the world around us doesn't elevate the same things, but the world around us will take the physical qualities of this world and will desperately try to satisfy the soul with the things of this world. Okay? And so he answers that question. That's what verses 7 and 9 are about. Verses 7 and 9 provide these almost proverbial uh, comparison. So verse 7 says, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his soul is not satisfied. Okay? And verse 9 asks it in the negative. Verse 9 says, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite or the wandering of the soul. And you say, okay, is it better that we just see the things of this world than the soul wanders aimlessly looking for purpose? And then he answers that. He says, Uh, No, this also is vanity and a striving after the wind, okay? So he's answering the question 
can the things of this world satisfy the soul? No, that's empty. It's a striving after the wind, okay? It's vanity. It will not satisfy the man, okay? The nephesh, the soul, the soul of man, the part of you that's not physical, cannot be satisfied with the things of this world. And whether you're, I, I know many of you here this morning are believers, but maybe you're not a believer, okay? Maybe you came here with someone this morning just trying to figure out what, what's going on, and I'm glad you came, but whether you're a believer or not a believer, you know something of the invisible qualities of man that just simply exist because you have sensed it, a longing for something more, the will and the volition of man, how we're more than just physical creatures. It's not just a math equation to figure out what we need or what we want, what our desires are. You know that to be true, and you know from experience that the things of this world do not satisfy that part of man, that they cannot. And you've tried it. We've all tried it, okay? The last six weeks have been us talking about the things that we've plugged into our lives, we thought they would satisfy, we tried them for a time, and sometimes it's a short time, and sometimes it's a long time, but we've tried to satisfy the soul with those things, and we only find ourselves in a worse place than when we began. Because those things do not satisfy the nephesh or the soul of man. Okay? So let me ask you then, are you aware of that? Do you know that you are both soul and body, and the soul, the part of you that lasts after you die, the one that God has caused to last into eternity future, the one that will either be in heaven with him or in hell, okay? Do you know that that part of you who is who you are is not satisfied with the things of this world? Do you know that? I would again suggest to you this morning that the world does not know that. They're not familiar with the, that being the definition or the explanation of what is being wrestled over in their hearts. Yes, they have the wrestle, but they have no categories for that. As I said this morning, I believe, whether you're aware of it or not, that this makes a ton of sense with our country and our culture over the last 50 or 25 or 5 or 3 however many years you want to go back, I believe this makes complete sense over a number of things that we see happening in our culture. You think about this, okay? What we would consider maybe the best advances of our culture, right? We've talked about for years cloning human beings. Not we, I don't talk about it, but scientists have talked about it, right? Cloning human beings. Why, why do we entertain that idea? Because we believe humanity is a physical collection of organs, and we can duplicate that. We can recreate that. And so that is a good thing for us, right? Uh, you talk about the other advancements in society. Today, there is this predominant view that whole groups of people, whole countries, whole communities, even maybe the whole world can be influenced to make certain decisions, right? And that is a concept that comes down to we are only a, a collection of uh, electrical impulses, and if swayed or pushed in the right direction, we will make the right choices, and, and here's how you influence culture, okay? That's a concept that reduces humanity only to the physical, okay? That we are only physical beings, that we're only physically influenced, that we're only concerned for physical things. 
And as much as I would say to you, this is, uh, this is how we define or come to grips with the best, maybe the best of our society, it's also how we explain the worst of our society and the worst of our culture. I'll give you a few examples of that, okay? You know why the majority of Americans uh, are in favor of abortion, okay? And I, and I know we've, we've had this argument for a long time, and we would like to think that the majority of Americans are opposed to it, that they see the value of life and, and we're going in the right direction. But every poll that I see, every statistic I see, says that our culture is predominantly in favor of abortion. Do you know why? It has to do with the physical versus the spiritual, okay? It has everything to do with uh, uh, the way that we conceive of life and of humanity. You know why exercise gyms are popping up everywhere, why Weight Watchers has been thriving for the last 60 years, why gender is seen as fluid today, why we idolize retirement, why the world seems only concerned with being able to live another day, why the education system is broken. I mean, just go down the list and begin to talk about the things you see in society. Do you know the reason that they are the way that they are? It's because our culture only sees the physical and not the spiritual. Because if the physical is all that there is, then you build your world around uh, protecting, preserving the physical, and in the case of some of those categories, manipulating the physical world the best that you can for as long as you can at whatever cost. And you've seen that in the world around you, right? The whole goal is to preserve physical life physically the way that we want it for as long as we can have it. And there's nothing more. There's nothing more. If there's no soul to speak about, then that's all we have to live for. And that is our only hope. See, this is what's been promoted for generations in pop culture. It's what politicians are selling. It's what we're seeing every day. It's what our children are being taught in schools. It's what we've been indoctrinated with, inoculated with. I mean, this, this is the message of our culture and of our society. And in a revolutionary and beautiful way, Jesus Christ said something very different, okay? We could look at any of the many words of Jesus, but I'll point you to one. Jesus says, do you not fear those who kill the, uh, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, the, the fear of the Lord produces a realistic expectation for both body and soul. We realize that we, we have a body and we have a soul, and that the soul will not be satisfied with the things of this world. And so this morning, I want to encourage you with this. Don't go seeking the satisfaction of your soul in the things of this world. Don't fear them who can kill the body only. Fear him who can cast your soul and your body into hell. Consider what the soul needs. Be mindful of your soul and the soul of your neighbor and the souls of those who are in your community. For it is the soul that lasts in eternity. Be mindful of your souls and consider what the soul needs to be satisfied. We know what the soul needs. There's a question that's being asked, and it's the internal wrestle trying to answer that question with the physical things of this world, knowing that the soul only can be satisfied in Christ Jesus. 
See, the things of this world were not designed to satisfy us. We know that. You remember how this book began? It said that God subjected the creation to futility. And let me remind you again that the subjection of this creation to futility was God's good gift to us to say nothing in this world will satisfy you. As a matter of fact, it will leave you unsatisfied. You can try it and you will end up empty every time. That's God's mercy on us that we would not be satisfied in this world, but our souls would long for more, that we would search out the Lord Jesus Christ, and when we find Him, we would find food for our souls and water that we would thirst no longer. The bread of life and living water. As Christ said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And he who the Son sets free is free indeed. He who the Son sets free is free indeed, free from bondage to sin, free from condemnation, but also free from the wrestling in this world, trying to satisfy the soul without any meaning or purpose or hope. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. Our souls long for something more, that in Christ and only in Him we might be satisfied. That's our message. That's our hope. We have nothing more, but we need nothing more. And that satisfaction of the soul in Christ Jesus can't be quenched by money or by children or by long life or by pleasure or by work. It just can't. The longing of the soul can only be satisfied in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We come before you this morning and we thank you, our Lord and our God, that you have not let us be satisfied with the things of this world. We know that the creation was designed for us, and we know that in the garden it was so beautiful, it was good. We thank you, Lord God, that you have not let us continue seeing that beauty and goodness of creation fully but you have rather subjected it to a measure of futility that we could try the things of this world and we could bottom out and we could not be satisfied. That we could have restless nights and we could wake up wandering and searching. That we could have relationships that fail, that struggle, that we could have many possessions, but they not move us, but only make us want more. We thank you for that, Lord God. And we thank you that your spirit is faithful. That when we want and we're desperate, you lead us by your spirit through your word to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, would you cause us to trust in him? Would you grow our faith in him? And would you glorify yourself as you call us out of darkness into light? Would Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior, receive all the glory and honor this morning? In his name we pray. Amen.